It's March 23rd, 1743, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Hallelujah! And 52 other songs <laughs> is what an audience at Covent Garden were enjoying on this day in 1743 because it was the London premiere of Handel's Messiah. It wasn't actually the first performance because he had already debuted it in Dublin. But in those days, obviously, London was considered sort of the centre of the world. So to all intents and purposes, we can call this the premiere of what is, by most accounts, the most performed piece of classical music in the world. Well, you've just alienated all our Irish listeners with one fell swoop there. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, this historic event in culture (laughs) happened in Ireland, but we're going to ignore that because it was more important when it happened in England. (laughs) Well, to bring those listeners back on board with us, there is a brilliant detail from its original performance when it was first performed at the Music Hall in Dublin uh, a full year almost earlier, where the audience swelled apparently to a record 700 people and ladies were asked to wear dresses without hoops in order to make room for more company. Well, (laughs) the fact that it was so popular that they had to make room for more people tells you that this was commercial (laughs) theatre. You know, this was bums on seat stuff. And that is in fact the thing that caused some controversy on this day when it premiered in London because people were uneasy about the fact that it was about Jesus and that was something Mm. you did in church. You know, apropos our episode yesterday uh, with the Puritans and what they thought you should be doing on the Sabbath in church listening to prayers, not at the opera. I mean, it's a huge proportion of the audience would have been not just practising Christians, but very familiar with the texts being sung, feeling uneasy. Like, what is this? If it's, a, mm. if it's a religious ritual, it should be in a church. Yeah, and, and one of the people annoyed by this was actually Charles Jennings, who had written the libretto for Handel and then presented it to him. And he was annoyed that Handel had only taken three weeks to compose the score, which runs to 259 pages, for what he considered, you know, I mean, he obviously treasured this. This was his baby. This was the ultimate for any librettist is writing about such a sacred subject matter you know it covers the whole life of Jesus and then goes a bit into the apocalypse at the end as well so it is this really vast tale and he was slightly irritated that it only took Handel three weeks to write the score (laughs) though apparently he slaved at it day and night and he said that he was divinely inspired yeah only took God seven days to build the world mate 24 days to write (laughs) some music that seems okay when you've got you've got God on your side. There's actually an interesting story about this because the first English language oratorio was written by Handel and it was called Esther and it was written in 1732. But he'd, he'd actually composed the score much earlier and then he reworked it into an oratorio specifically because he had conceived of it as being a stage production and the Bishop of London would not permit any biblical stories mm. to be enacted on the London stage. So he reworked it into this form that's almost like what we might now recognise as a semi-stage performance. You know, Celebrities will sometimes do versions of musical for charity like this where they're, they, you know, they're standing at the microphone with the script in their hand they're not necessarily doing anything or acting they're singing and they are the characters but it's not a stage mm. show it's kind of a concert with some extra frills well, Partly also Handel was pivoting away from opera because He'd moved to London and this uh, major rivalry had broken out between uh, the devotees of the more conventional Italian opera style, which was typified by a composer called Giovanni Bononcini on the one side. I mean, who? Uh, and those who preferred Handel's yeah, Handel more won. new school Italian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and those who preferred his more new school style Italian operas. And the partisanship was captured in a 1725 uh, verse by poet John Byrom, who wrote... 
Uh, some say compared to Bononcini that mine here handles Buttonini. Others aver that he to handle is scarcely fit to hold a candle. <laughs> so people love to write comic verse about their point of view in these days, didn't they? I right. Keep yeah, that this. was the sort of like every letter to a newspaper is like some may say, but up, but down. It's like just answer the. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> Why are you doing this? And comic verse was actually one of the reasons that audiences were becoming less enamoured of Italian opera. On one hand, there was the expense of staging them, which was just growing and growing as people got used to more and more spectacle, and the fact that you had these big-time divas who were making everything difficult. But also then you had the success of John Gay's the book called The Beggar's Opera, which was this satire of these overblown Italian operas. The, the fact that that in itself was so successful was a sign that tastes were changing. And for Handel, it was a sign that the time was right to pivot back to the religious oratorio that he'd learned about as a young man. But it was controversial. So when they advertised this performance and followers of Handel would have already known that this had been a big sensation in Dublin and was now coming across to, to England... But nonetheless, they put ads in the Daily Advertiser and the London Daily Post, which listed the title of the performance only as a new sacred oratorio. They didn't want to put the word Messiah in the advert for the show that was called Messiah, because that would be Mm. seen as potentially a bit sensitive and blasphemous, you know, the idea of having it in a secular venue. Here is a letter that a concerned reader wrote to the Universal Spectator, having seen this advert uh, in anticipation of the production. This better rhyme. It's not going to rhyme. <laughs> David said, How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But sure, he would have thought it much stranger to have heard it sung in a playhouse. And it's interesting, therefore, when you see how the show is structured, that the first words in it are, Comfort ye my people, which strikes me as basically comfort food for the audience who hmm. are feeling nervous about what they're about to see. And also generally, like, in the Enlightenment, are feeling nervous about whether God is still there for them and is going to save their soul or not, basically, like, you know. Yeah. And then the librettist deliberately avoids putting any of Jesus' words, as reported in the Bible, in anyone's mouth so that no one is on stage Mm. being Christ, which ultimately led to the tradition of the Messiah being a charitable performance as well, by the way. So no one's making Mm. money out of this. Like, Handel would have made a fortune, but he gave all his money to charity, again, partly because it's like, I'm going to do a show about Christ, we'll give the money to a charity. There was a really famous incident during this earlier performance of Esther, the the first oratorio, where they had an Italian singer who was singing a role and the line was, I come, my queen, to chaste delights, but in his accent was apparently rendered as I comb my queen to chase the lice, which provoked great mirth. And so they they probably wanted to avoid anything similar. They didn't want Jesus's words coming out in this kind of mangled innuendo fashion. Although it's hard to imagine what a Palestinian Jew singing Baroque opera would have sounded like. (laughs) I think quite hard to approximate, really. I mean, that's the thing that strikes me listening to it now. It's just so kind of de-dum-de-dum-de-duddly-dum, isn't it? I mean, it's great. It's beautiful music, but it is very like white European dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum. It's kind of like weird that it's about the Middle East at all. (laughs) It came to be one of Handel's favourite pieces of his own that he'd written. And even uh, in 1759, when he was blind and his health was failing, he insisted on attending a production at the Theatre Royal in Covent Garden. And eight days later, he died at home. So it was like the last thing that he wanted to see of his own work before his own death. And Mozart paid uh, the Messiah a 
huge compliment and he reorchestrated it in 1789. But even he confessed himself to be kind of humble in the face of Handel's genius and he insisted that any alterations that he was making to the score should not be seen as an effort to improve the music. And he said, Handel knows better than any of us what will make an effect. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. Yeah, Beethoven called Handel the greatest composer that ever lived as a result of The Messiah, which is a pretty strong recommendation Mm. as well, isn't it? It's extraordinary that it's one of those things that was an enormous commercial hit in its time, recognised amongst its peers as being the best of its type, and is still basically, I guess now because it's part of the Christmas calendar, which is weird because it was written for Easter anyway, but, you know, Mm. uh, is is still performed annually all across the world. Mm. I mean, there's not many... It's like Hamlet and this, basically, that come to that sort of level over hundreds of years, isn't there? Yeah, and although today we obviously see the Messiah as being, you know, this really central composition in Western classical music, sort of got untouchable status, within his lifetime, Handel actually rewrote Messiah frequently. He wasn't precious about it at all. He would take out and add in different arias depending on who was singing, depending on what musicians they had, because that was another thing that would have been really different on this day in 1743 at the premiere to today, is that it was staged on what we would now see as a very small scale, because we all associate the Hallelujah Chorus in particular with these massed choirs. But in the early performances, it was staged with a pretty small number of people. The choir was about 30 people Mm. and there were about 30 musicians as well. And the numbers have sort of ballooned over the years as the renown of Messiah grew and grew and grew until by the 1850s, it was staged at Crystal Palace with 4,000 singers and 500 musicians. (laughs) Although since then, there has been a movement to reduce those numbers back to something a bit more like (laughs) Handel's original version. Yeah, a bit more... rationalised we just get let's just keep escalating this until the whole world is singing simultaneously tomorrow he turned up with two friends at Chofu airport they were dressed as world war ii kamikazes love the show support the show patreon.com slash retrospectors part of the acast creator network